we're in Romans chapter 3, and in a few moments we'll begin taking a look at verses 27 to 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 uh, to 31. And while you're turning there, let me just mention to you uh, that you and I have this uh, a predisposition to be um, arrogant and boastful about our good deeds. We tend to deny uh, our flaws and our bad deeds. We, we tend to resist confessing our sin, but we like to promote our accomplishments, our integrity, our merits, and our good works. And religious people are particularly uh, prone to this kind of boastfulness. If you're a member of a particular religious group, particularly one that has standards and rules and ceremonies and rituals that distinguish your religious group from another, you will have a proneness to boast about your membership in that religious group, almost to the extent that you make that the basis of your right standing with God. So you start laying claim to your denomination or your religion or something like that as the basis of your salvation, and that gives you a reason to boast. But if you were saved, if you really believed it, through no merit of your own, but entirely by the grace of God, you couldn't boast about your own merits and accomplishments and achievements. You would have to proclaim with enthusiasm the merits of the God who saved you. Now, this is a problem, folks. I noticed this even amongst well-known Hollywood people, some of whom are living outlandish lives. Several partners of every variety publicly displayed before us without a bit of shame, and yet some of those same people are at the forefront of humanitarian efforts to change the world, uh, environmentalism, you know, to go green. Uh, they voted a couple, I saw this on TV the other day, the most green couple in the world today, the most environmentally conscious. You know, they would got compost and the right light bulbs and all this kind of stuff. But this is a couple I happen to know, serial marriages, many relationships, divorces and affairs and this and that and same gender and this, but they got the right light bulbs. It's interesting to me because there's such a moral inconsistency there. What's it about? I think we're... Um, we have the same tendency they do, in my opinion, knowing in our conscience that we are uh, askance from the will of God. We just know this. He implanted his sense of rightness and wrongness in our lives. When we violate it, we know this, even without a preacher. And so as to make up for it, we choose some cause, some philanthropic endeavor, so as to parade that before ourselves and the world, and even God, so as to say, I don't have a sin problem. I don't need a savior. Look at this. I'm able to save myself through my own virtue and goodness and merit and humanitarian efforts. Well, Paul knows about all this. And so he addresses the issue, the one that I've just introduced to you, head on. And you'll see it. Here it goes. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 27. He opens with this question. Where then is boasting? In this case, he's talking to my peeps. He's talking to Jewish religious people at the time. He's talking to Jews who took pride in the fact that they were recipients 
of the law of Moses. They dressed differently. They spoke differently. They ate different foods. All they said in compliance with the law of Moses. They boasted of the fact that being recipients of the law of Moses and seeking to live by it is what got them points with God. They were not looking for a savior. There's no need for a savior. They don't need to be saved from anything. Look, they're living by the law of Moses. Paul himself, a Jew, said to them, where then is boasting? He answers his own question, it is excluded. And then he explains by what kind of law, meaning by what kind of principle or system or approach. Is it, an, is it a law of works? Does works, do works exclude boasting? No, our human works actually accentuate our tendency to boast. He said, no, boasting is excluded by a law of faith. Folks, if we are redeemed, not by, by, by what we do, by what, but by what Jesus has done, you can't boast about what you've done. You have to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me offer this illustration to, to highlight this. It's not mine. It was offered by a man named Clarence Bentz. Here's what he said. Imagine a person who through carelessness or perhaps even daredevil stupidity decided to paddle a canoe down the Niagara River. Suddenly the boater senses impending disaster as the roar of the horseshoe falls signals what lies ahead. Too late, the boater begins paddling frantically for shore, but the current draws him closer and closer to destruction. Then, overhead, a voice calls down from a circling helicopter, do you want to be rescued? At first, the boater, filled with pride, replies, I think I can make it myself. Foolish thought. The canoeist quickly realizes that nothing he can do will prevent certain death. Again, the voice from above, do you want me to rescue you? The response this time is a desperate, yes. Then cling to the rope, I toss you comes the instruction. The boater clutches the rope in sheer terror, unable to do anything but cling in hope and faith for the lifeline sent his way. He suddenly lifted from the canoe and pulled into the chopper, saved at last. Now imagine such a person telling a news reporter a few minutes later how smart he was to have owned a brightly colored canoe that could be detected by the pilot. How skillful he was to maneuver his boat to a spot underneath the helicopter. How coordinated he was to grasp the rope. How strong he was to hold on all the way up to the helicopter. Such boasting would be ridiculous and an insult to his rescuer listening in the background. And folks, boasting about being right with God based on any contribution we think we've made to it in our own good deeds, efforts, and accomplishments is just as ridiculous and insulting to the Savior. Folks, all the sinning is ours. All the saving is his. You can't boast about anything you've done as a means of being right with God because the only way to be right with God is on the merits of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
not our own. Salvation comes from above, and the human response of faith is little more than grasping the rope of salvation offered to us. The person who is redeemed, as I mentioned, saved by the blood of the Lamb, says, I did all the sinning. Jesus, my Savior, did all the saving. So why does Paul even bring this up at this point in Romans? Because he is a student not only of the Word of God, but also of human nature, and he knows this is our human nature. We are prone to want to take credit for our rightness with God in whole or in part. But the text says, no, boasting is excluded. There's no room for it. And that's why those who arrogantly think they could establish their own right standing with a holy God hate, verse 28. It says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Folks, the good news of God's grace through faith is really a terrifying kind of grace. It's a terrifying grace because it leaves us with absolutely no room for boasting about our merits or good deeds or accomplishments. It terrifies us because I have no leg to stand on except the grace of Almighty God, not in part but in whole. One of the disturbing consequences, if you think about it, of the gospel of grace is that all boasting is ruled out. I didn't earn it. I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. Therefore, I cannot take credit for it. I cannot boast about it. I have to praise God for his amazing grace. It terrifies me that I cannot, in my own mind, set myself apart from the rest of humanity as being better. It terrifies me that I'm left with having to accept the reality I'm like everybody else, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I have to throw myself upon the throne of grace, ask for the mercy of God, and when once having received it, then I have to spend the rest of my days boasting in what he did. I can't boast in what I did or do or plan on doing. Now, folks, almost every cult and every major world religion um, err in this regard. There's a distinction made in verse 28 between faith and works, and cults do not make that distinction, nor do many religious groups. Most cults and religious groups blur the line, and they say, although faith in this God, maybe even in this Jesus, is required, it's not enough, and you must merge faith in God with your own meritorious efforts, faith plus works. So, for instance, let me give you a sample list of the kinds of works typically required in many faith groups, and particularly in cult groups. One is donating money. Uh, another is participation in secret rituals. See, it's those secret rituals which give you an arrogant basis for boasting. There are certain things the cult says are known only to you and not to the uninitiated, not to the profane, you see? abstaining from certain foods. One of the mark of cults are all these human, man-made, non-biblical standards about what you can eat and what you cannot eat. Spending hours fundraising, uh, oftentimes through literature distribution or the selling of trinkets or flowers. Recruitment of new members. These are all the things you must do in addition to your so-called faith in Almighty God in order to secure your right standing with him observing certain holidays or 
refusing to observe certain holidays. There's always a group of people who around Christmas and Easter make the point that these are pagan holidays and therefore anyone who does it is out to lunch and anyone who observes these days. And, well, I, yeah, never mind. Obeying the Ten Commandments is a basis of salvation in many groups. Other laws. Baptism. Oh, we saw wonderful baptism. But what we saw was a reflection of the private salvation which already came to be the case with these who were baptized. We saw the public expression of what already took place privately and personally as each one of these in the baptistry placed their faith in the totality and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are some groups who say, no, faith in him is not enough. It's faith plus baptism that saves, you see. Uh, some groups say, unless you maintain membership in that group to the exclusion of all others, you've lost your salvation. That's why it's so hard to leave certain religious groups and particularly cults. It's very hard to leave, to depart, because you're left with this notion, God will punish you. You will never have him as fully as you have now. You are abandoning him. He will abandon you. Abstaining from medical treatments. There are cult groups. This is one of the parameters by which you ensure your devotion and salvation. You do not take blood transfusions and things like that. Loyalty and obedience to superiors to the extent that what the superior, the spiritual superior tells you to do, you must do. Otherwise, you come under the discipline of the group. So it isn't the counsel and guidance of a pastor that you're asked to respect. No, no, no. It's the dictatorial authoritative word. You will marry this one. You will not marry this one. You will do this. You will do that. If you do not do this, we'll bring you under church discipline. That happens in cult groups every day in our society. Uh, this one, limiting contact with former members or uh, uh, those outside the group. This is one of the key marks of a cult group who may say, we believe in Jesus, but I got to tell you, it's a different Jesus than the one we believe in. The one we believe in took care of our sin, sat down, said it is finished, paid in full. The Jesus of cult group says, you got a lot of work to do to ensure and sustain your salvation. You could lose it. It's not yours. You can't be assured of it unless you stay with us. And by the way, cut yourself off from parents and relatives and friends. We are your new family. That's what cults do. They're different, and yet they're the same. And world religions are different, and yet they're the same. Every world religion requires works in whole or in part to ensure your right standing with God. Not one major world religion holds to justification by faith alone. Not one. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who hold to it believe that. Every other world religion say, no, you're justified by works. Let me illustrate. Let me take Hinduism, for instance. In Hinduism, salvation is called moksha. And this is when a person is freed. A Hindu person is freed from the cycle of life and death, usually through a, a, a repeated in, reincarnations. 
And, and when one is freed from the cycle of life and death, one then becomes one with God. And there are four ways to this salvation, to this moksha. One is called the way of action in Hinduism. And this involves carrying out and practicing certain religious ceremonies and duties and rites. The second is the way of knowledge, and this means using your mind to come to a complete comprehension of the universe. The third way to be right with God in Hinduism is called the way of devotion, and that teaches that salvation is re reached through acts of worship and devotion to a God. In Hinduism, there are thousands of gods. Choose the one you want, and you have to be devoted to that particular God. And then fourthly, something called the royal road. And this is the use of meditation and yoga techniques in order to make you right with God. By the way, this is a topic for another day uh, when I want to irritate folks. But have you heard this expression, Christian yoga? To me, that's uh, an oxymoron. The terms are inconsistent. There's no such thing as Christian yoga. Please do not be deceived. Look, if you want some physical exercise, jump up and down, jog, do something, do sit-ups. But Christian yoga is bad stuff, folks. Don't be taken in by it. Okay, so each of these four ways to be right with God in Hinduism, you could see, requires that a person do lots of stuff. Salvation for a Hindu is a matter of works and effort, stick-to-itiveness, perseverance, human virtue, and mind power. What about Buddhism? In Buddhism, salvation is reaching a state called nirvana. It's a state of blissful, transcendental oneness with the universe. It's actually in Buddhism called the spiritual state of nothingness. Nothingness is nirvana. When you're just freed of everything of substance and you just blend in with the transcendent universe, that's salvation in Buddhism. And to reach nirvana, you have to follow what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. This is sad. Do you know how many millions of people, Hindus and Buddhists, labor under the misconception that you have to do all this stuff to be right with God? The Noble Eightfold Path involves things like renouncing the pleasures of the body, not gossiping or lying, not killing or stealing or engaging in unlawful sexual activity, uh, avoiding working in any job that may bring harm to a person, working to eliminate, you have to do this, you have to work to eliminate evil from your life. You have to develop self-awareness so that you can be free of selfishness. You have to train your mind to focus on a single object so as to develop a calm mind. These are some of the things you do as part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Do you notice it all requires human effort? You have to save yourself. And when you succeed, then you see you can boast in the fact that you are your own savior. Islam, same thing. In Islam, there are two ways to get to paradise, the equivalent of salvation, heaven. The first is this. Your good deeds are going to be weighed in Islam, your good deeds are going to be weighed against your bad deeds. Allah is going to do this. If, in the end, you have done, from Allah's reckoning, enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, you will eventually get to paradise after spending some time in the burning fires of hell. After a certain period of time, Allah will deliver those 
who have done a sufficient number of good deeds, he will deliver them from hell, leaving behind in hell those who have not done a sufficient number of good deeds. The second way to be saved in Islam is easy. All you got to do is die as a martyr. In Islam, if you die as a, a martyr, uh, then you, you go directly to paradise. Sad! Millions Muslim, devout, passionate, devoted Muslim people labor under the misconception <coughs> that salvation is a matter of works, left to chance, <coughs> according to the whim of Allah. You cannot have the certainty of eternal salvation based upon the merits of Christ Jesus. You know what's so terrible about being justified? <coughs> Excuse me, trying to be justified by works. You can't know for sure whether you made it until the end when your deity evaluates your works. So you're in a constant state of spiritual stress and pressure because you never know what your standing is with your deity. The beauty of being justified by faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is you can know with certainty the moment you accept him that you are right with God now and forevermore. I've said this before. Would you think I'm arrogant if I tell you I'm absolutely certain as I stand here now? I'm so okay with God that should I die tonight, I'm going to be with him forever. It's no, I'm not both. Well, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I don't merit it. Nothing like that. Jesus paid it all, all to him I own. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I'm justified by faith. There's no uncertainty about what the future holds. I'm not waiting for him to, 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 to measure in the balance. My good deeds is over against my bad deeds. <laughs> I'm a sinner who has fallen short of his grace, and the Lord Jesus provided the absolute marvelous solution for my sin problem. He took it all on him. He was crucified on my behalf. And he cast all my sins behind his back, never to retrieve them again. I boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you, if you're a Christian. But can't we contribute to our salvation even in just a small way? No. That would be like receiving a birthday gift and then insulting the giver by insisting on paying him for it in part. If you insist on paying for the gift, even in part, it ceases, doesn't it, to be a gift only when it is totally provided by the giver is the gift a gift. And when the gift is entirely provided by the giver, all boasting is excluded. Salvation is that gift. All boasting is excluded. But what about James chapter 2, verse 24? Are you familiar with this one? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So people will say, wait a minute, what Paul said in Romans is contrary to what James said there in James 2.24. No, those are people who don't know what they're talking about. Paul and James are addressing two entirely different issues. Both of them agree that we are justified by faith alone in the meritorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, what James is saying is that you cannot show you are saved without a changed lifestyle and different deeds. Paul and James are saying you are saved by faith, not by works. But James is saying, 
unless you see evidence of salvation in that you are living differently, you may not be saved. Then verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? That would be cool. (laughs) I don't have a very objective opinion on that one. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Oh, man, Paul answered, yes, of Gentiles also. He might not have read it quite like that. Yeah, now Paul's making a point here. Listen to this. If the Jewish people, if people are saved by the works of the law, by religious standards and creeds and ceremonies, all this kind of stuff, if the Jews are saved by the works of the law, then only the Jews can be saved because only the Jews were given the law of Moses. You see what Paul's argument is? That would make God the God only of the Jews. (laughs) But even the most boastful religious Jew would not accept that. Even that person would say to Paul, no, 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 he's he's the God of all people. That's right. Therefore, both Jews and Gentiles are saved in exactly the same way by faith. And there it is in verse 30. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's Jews, through faith is one. The God who justifies Jews and Gentiles is one. You know what Paul, the one-time rabbi, is doing? He's speaking the language of the Jews. He's hitting them really at the heart of their theological distinctive monotheism. Uh, Jews uh, um, boasted (laughs) about their belief in one God while all their neighbors had a multiplicity of gods. And we are told in Torah, Deuteronomy, hero Israel, uh, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. Uh, it's called the Shema, from the opening word, hear. Shema means listen up, listen. And we say it all the time. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the last word, one. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul is saying if God is one, he only has one means of salvation for all people groups on earth, be they Jewish or Gentile. Well then, verse 31, the Jewish religionist might ask, do we then nullify the law through faith? If it's all about faith, do we show disrespect for the law of Moses? Do, do, we, do, do we dispense with it and get rid of it? Paul answers his own, his own question, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. How does the gospel of grace, salvation by faith, establish the law? The law demands perfect obedience, and if you don't render it, it demands the penalty of death. Out of respect for the requirements of the law, the gospel, the good news, tells us of how Christ Jesus paid the penalty for laws broken by us. The gospel doesn't dispense with the law, show disrespect for it, or minimize it. 
The gospel acts in a way that is consistent with the law. The law calls for the penalty of death in the case of disobedience. We have all violated one or more of the commandments of God. Jesus died. Died! There is death as a result of the penalty which we incurred through our sin. That's what it means when Paul says, Oh, no, we respect the law. We fulfill it. There is a man named Justin Bazard, and he said this about all this grace of God, that Jesus would die for us, though we be lawbreakers. Uh, Justin said, before grace is amazing, it is terrifying. Terrifying grace is the song you shout when you wake up and realize that you can't save yourself, that you've been building your life on sand, not rock. The storm has hit and your house is crumbling, and you suddenly see that the only thing that can save you is not you. It's the day you quit playing God and understand that you need a real God, a real Savior. I think we resist God's grace because we can't comprehend it, understand it, wrap our arms around it. We can't get a handle on it because it's contrary to the rules of life. Grace is God not playing by the rules. We know the rules. If I do good, I get good. If I do bad, I get bad. God said, I don't play by those rules. You have done bad. And I will show my willingness to redeem you in spite of you. Not only will I pardon you and forgive you, I'll take you unto myself. I'll call you a son or a daughter. You'll be part of my family. We don't get it. We can't comprehend it. It doesn't compute. It requires such unlearning. For most of us, we would rather just dispense with it, dismiss it, and say, no, I don't believe. It's terrifying grace. It removes any possibility of meritorious service or behavior on my part to which I can claim to be the basis of my rightness with God. I cannot do that. I can't pat myself on the back. I can't go to an award ceremony and have you present me with an award and think that's from God. I can't do that. It's terrifying grace before it's amazing grace. It is amazingly terrifying grace but that it is so overwhelming and incomprehensible and unfathomable is no reason for all of us not to believe it, accept it, and say thank you to the God of all grace for the rest of our life and on into eternity. Thank you, God, for saving my soul. Thank you, God, for making me whole. Thank you, God, for giving to me thy great salvation. This is terrifying. It is so rich and free. Have you accepted the freeness of the good news which says, in spite of your sin nature, you can be right with God, pardoned, forgiven, a son or a daughter with access to the throne of grace on into eternity. Have you done that? Lord Jesus, why not everyone here tonight? Why not one single exception to the rule? Oh, God, grace is you not playing by the rules. It's not tit for tat. It's it's in any way response from you. It's you've done this and you've done that and you violated this and broken that, but I am willing to have you, forgive you, love you anyway. 
at his amazing grace. Oh, God in heaven, let it not be wasted on anyone here tonight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.